Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. This is our very first episode, so thanks for tuning in. You might be wondering, well, what is this podcast? Well, it's a show where Angie and I, Eric, two PhD students at Stanford's psychology department, chat with leading psychologists from across the world about what they have been working on most recently, like a paper they published, a book they've written. We believe psychology has a lot of insight to offer for everyone, but we also know that it can be hard to keep track of what people are working on. We hope this podcast gives everyone a chance to stay informed about what is going on in the field right now, no matter where you are and what you do. To kick things off this week, I am excited to share with you my conversation with Jamil Zaki. Jamil is a professor here at Stanford and director of the Stanford Social Neuroscience Lab. He's interested in all things empathy, and he's the author of the book, The War for Kindness. Finally, he's also my PhD advisor. So in this conversation, we chatted about a recent publication from the lab that looks at how our moral behavior is shaped by the market ideologies we live in. Without further ado, here's our conversation. All right, today I have the big pleasure of speaking with Jamil Zaki. Jamil, thanks for joining the podcast. Oh, it's my total pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I asked you what paper you want to discuss, and you mentioned a paper called Market Cognition, How Exchange Norms Alter Social Experience. That sounds exciting. So so what is this paper about, and, and what even is market cognition? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll back up a little bit in, in a couple of different ways. So first, I want to right off the bat acknowledge, Eric, that you are an author on this paper, and thank you for your terrific partnership in creating it. So I'm sure that we'll have a lot to talk about later on, and I'd love to hear your perspective during this conversation as well. You know, I'll say that the genesis of this paper for me is a dissatisfaction with psychology <laughs> in, oh, wow. a, in a pretty uh, big way. So, uh, and that dissatisfaction didn't arise for me until I tried to talk about the thing that I study the most with people who are not in psychology. So, um, as, as you know, I've, I've studied empathy for most of my career. And in 2015, I, I started a book project trying to write about empathy for uh, for a, a, a non-academic audience. And the immediate thing that you realize when you start talking with people in other fields about your work as a psychologist is that they're interested but dissatisfied. Because as psychologists, we tend to naturally focus on the individual level of analysis. We really are very interested in the experiences and actions of, of one person at a time. Um, and, and that's really, obviously, I think a valuable way of thinking about the world and a valuable way of thinking about people. But of course, people are not islands. Uh, they're affected by the larger social and economic and cultural structures around them. And so when you talk to a sociologist or an anthropologist or a nurse or, uh, or anybody who's not a psychologist about something like empathy, and, and start to talk about, well, okay, it's got these genetic factors and these choices that you make. They immediately say, but 
what about the forces around us? What about the, you know, I, I don't not empathize because I haven't had this training. I don't empathize because I'm, I'm like fighting to earn a paycheck in a, in a world that makes it harder to do that every year. Or because I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm seeing on the news these stories about people who seem like they don't deserve any empathy at all. And, and so I guess I started struggling. In a, I hope, productive way and saying, is there a way to more systematically connect the things that I care about in psychology, which are sort of social behaviors and sort of social connection and prosociality in particular with larger levels of analysis, like economic levels of analysis? And so uh, one of the first forays into that type of thinking that I made was this paper market cognition, which in essence, and so yes, what on earth is market cognition? Well, I suppose it's, it's um, an attempt to ask the question, what does being embedded in uh, an economic marketplace, a neoliberal potentially culture around markets as well, what does that do to our minds, right? That would be market cognition. I suppose in the paper, we try to take a narrower slice on it just to have something that we can get our arms around, which is what do market forces and what is being embedded in a market-oriented uh, society, what does that do to our sense of each other, to our relationships, and in particular to how we approach uh, cooperation and other forms of pro-social behavior? Yeah, I, I really like this. And I also want to reveal that when you first approached me with this project, I, I was very enthusiastic, but I also thought, oh, wow, that is a big task. <laughs> that is a really big, big challenge to tackle. And uh, I'm really impressed just with the with the, with the bravery uh, that you had and just like venturing into the unknown in a sense and, and, and just seeing where it goes and where, well, where did it go? Uh, so so you mentioned that we're not trying to explain all of the market and how it impacts all of our cognition, but a very uh, slim part of it, a certain part of it. So so what is this part? Yeah, I mean, we, we were interested, as you know, Eric, in, in understanding um, what market forces do to pro-social behavior, which is broadly construed as people's willingness to cooperate with each other and even sometimes to sacrifice their own gains to help others, right, to act with generosity. And, you know, I think that there's a really interesting tension here, right? Because one view of, of this is that, oh, well, markets make us selfish uh, because markets are oriented towards economic gain, right? Uh, but there's another perspective, which would be the perspective of folks like Adam Smith, which is that, no, actually, markets are a very efficient way to get people to be very cooperative, very pro-social, because what a good free market does um, is that it aligns self-interest with the greater good, right? So uh, I think there's a quote in, in uh, The Wealth of Nations where he says, it's, I'm, I'm going to butcher it, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's not from the goodwill of the, of the butcher or the baker uh, that I expect my meal, but from their own interest, from their, their self-interest, right? So in other words, in a good market, people are incentivized to, um, to do things that are useful to other people <laughs> because other people will pay them for those things. Uh, and they're, they're incentivized not only to do things that are useful, but to act in ways that are fair and trustworthy, 
because those things will also be rewarded by a market, especially if people have free choice about who they interact with. So Pat Barclay and others have uh, studied what they call biological marketplaces, where there's things like, you know, if people are dating or choosing partners uh, for romantic relationships or friendships, well, they're going to use all the information available. And if you want to be chosen as a partner, it behooves you to be good as a partner, to be kind and trustworthy and reliable. And I guess, you know, what, what we tried to do in one half of the paper is say that that too also happens in market cultures, right? So as a culture becomes market integrated, for instance, as people begin uh, trading uh, using a common currency, uh, it seems as though a couple of things happen. People become more general, their trust generalizes, right? So they're more willing to trust people who they don't know and their incentives to act pro-socially increase, right? So their incentives to show up for people maybe who are outside of their family or immediate group increase. Yeah. And one common reaction that I've received uh, to the paper that I think we should address is that, you know, some people have asked me, so, What's the conclusion, pro or contra capitalism? And, uh, I think the answer has to be, this is not a paper about capitalism, and it's also not a paper where we take any normative stance, like, this is better or worse, but we really talk about market cultures, which is much deeper and encompasses all kinds of markets, that are not just capitalistic. So we're not just going back a couple of decades, hundreds of years, we're going back thousands of years, just really trying to understand, well, how does living in a market impact our pro-social behavior and as you said, you know, especially in, in interaction with people we don't even know, with strangers, we otherwise might have had hostile interactions with, and now we can trust them because, in part, because it's in their self-interest to cooperate with us. Yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, it, it's it's interesting. I, I remember hearing a uh, an interview with a, uh, a sociologist who studies the history of money. Um, you know, and and it, it, he he emphasized that really. At, at its inception, money was about relationships. It was a way of codifying relationships and recording relationships. Who owes what to whom? Almost like enforcing reciprocity in a, in a quantitative way, right? I mean, it's sort of like, it's, it's almost as though money was invented for game theoretic purposes, <laughs> um, to help people come up with social agreements that are enforceable and track, and tractable in a certain way. So yeah, I agree with you. We're going back as far as we can when we think about market cognition. And I agree with you too that we're not here to necessarily take a normative stance. Although, you know, I think that there, there, you know, in psychology, oftentimes it's, we, we tread this thin line where we say, we're not here to tell you what to do. And yet we can talk about, uh, adaptive and maladaptive outcomes, right? So that's oftentimes code in psychology or other behavioral sciences for good and bad <laughs> is adaptive and maladaptive, right? So you can say, okay, this, we're not going to say whether, um, you know, social media is good or bad, but in this case, it leads to a maladaptive out outcome like depression, right? Well, that's kind of the same as saying that it's bad in that context, but it is, you know, in a more circumscribed way. So, okay, so that was one side. That was, the, I think we called it the bright side. What is, what is the dark side? Yeah. So, so again, the bright side is, uh, that, that in a market culture, 
we're incentivized to act kindly, pro-socially, and that will broaden our the, the diameter of our kindness, if you will. The dark side is that because market cultures give everyone ulterior motives to through which to act kindly, it's harder to know why they're doing it. It's harder to understand the motives behind their actions. And it turns out that there's all sorts of evidence from anthropology, economics, and psychology that motives matter. If somebody does something nice for you, you care why they did it. If they did it to get a tax break or they did it to impress somebody else, you do not credit them in the same way as if they did it because they were genuinely concerned for your well-being. And there is abundant evidence, including from Ryan Carlson, who worked with us in the lab here, on what we call tainted prosociality. Basically, that when you can ascribe someone's prosocial action to, uh, to a selfish motive, you don't actually feel closer to them. You don't actually admire them as much. And you might not trust them outside of the boundaries of that space. So another example of this is contracts, right? When people engage in economic enforceable contracts, they trust each other to, uh, to act, to, to act according to the contract, to, to act kindly within the bounds of that contract. But of course they do. It's almost like they're in a standoff with each one holding a gun to the other's head, right? Outside of that contract, when it's not enforced anymore, those people actually don't know very much about each other. And so market cultures can put us in this weird position where we're incentivized to act kindly, but at the same time, unsure why anybody's acting kindly. So it can kind of, in a way, can take some of the deeper human connection out of the types of behaviors, pro-social behaviors that are historically there to create that connection. Yeah. And, and this kind of transactional thinking can really influence our everyday life where every interaction seems like an interaction, like a market exchange. And I was just, I was getting a haircut yesterday and then uh, I wanted to pay and the hairdresser was like, well, $25. And I was like, yeah, here's my card. And she was like, oh, we only take cash. And I didn't have cash. And so I was like, oh, what am I going to do? And she was like, well, there's an ATM over there. You can just go there. And for a second, I was really tempted to, to you know, give her my phone or some sort of security that I'd be back. But then I remembered our paper and I was like, well, she seems kind and she doesn't seem like she would think that I'm, you know, selfish enough to just run away uh, for $25. <laughs> no, also I have to come back. I live here for a couple of years. <laughs> um, and so I just left without leaving anything there. And, you know, she seemed really relaxed when I did come back. So just for the listeners, I did come back. I did not run away. Um, and it seems like a more, like it was a warmer interaction. And I think it would have been kind of awkward to just offer her to leave my phone. She might have been, like, oh, I don't know. Okay. I, I would have trusted you, but apparently I can't. Um, and she's not even a close friend, right? This is just a stranger I don't really interact with very often. Um, but still this, this kind of thinking can just pervade, uh, just our everyday interaction. I, you know, I, I love that story, both because it's an example of escaping market cognition, right? You, you had a genuine moment of trust. I mean, if you think of trust as making yourself vulnerable because you believe in the other person's genuine goodwill, she trusted you, right? The hairdresser trusted you and didn't ask for any collateral on some market-oriented agreement. 
you know, the sad side of that is how unusual that exchange is. I mean, it sounds like even in that moment, you felt weird about it. You felt like this is an unusual way to interact. And I think that it used to be less unusual, right? I mean, if you think about sort of um, pre-internet culture, maybe when people were more bound to their local communities or their neighborhood, you probably w- it would have been pretty normal to say, oh, I got to go get my wallet. I'll be back in 10 minutes. Or even I have to go get my wallet and then I have to pick up my dog and then I have to go, can I come back in tomorrow or in a couple of days and pay you? And it would have been fine. I mean, your corner store used to have a log of, you know, people had a tab, right? Of, and, and they would just take out, they would buy things on loan until they got paid and then they would come and pay the person at the store. That type of, that type of trust requires a level of interactivity that I think we often are lacking in this sort of, well, I mean, definitely these days with COVID, but, um, but even pre-COVID, I think we're lacking in this more atomized market culture where in essence, we, we don't have the same level of community, local community that we used to. We have all sorts of other forms of community, but I would, I, I haven't seen any data on this, but I think it would be fascinating to look at the percentage of our interactions that are purely transactional um, now versus say a hundred years ago or 20 years ago. And I think that, you know, we're, we're at least I've had the same experiences as you, where I now feel like really anytime that I'm interacting with somebody in a market setting, it's pretty locked in. Like there's not an element of, there's not a way for me to demonstrate my genuine trustworthiness because we're basically locked in a contract the entire time that we're interacting. Yeah. And, and even though circumstances can change and, and norms can change, oftentimes whatever we're doing right now just sticks around for a while, it's just status quo and uh, whatever you know, transactional or communal norms we have might, might stick around for a while, which is really the last part of the paper, right? Where we talk about um, how these norms can get reinforced, whether they're adaptive or not, they just stick around for a while. Yeah, they, they get reinforced and they kind of become self-fulfilling. I mean, I think one of the interesting... Um, one of the interesting things is, is in the history of, of economics, which I'm not going to pretend like I know a whole lot about, but you know, you look at Adam Smith's proposition, which is basically the best way to get people to act kindly is to align it with self-interest. Um, and, and I think that's been a pretty, uh, pretty standard perception in, in economics ever since. And underlying that is the idea that we are mostly driven by self-interest. And so if you want to get someone to do anything, appeal to selfish motives because those are the most powerful motives. Well, I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. I don't think it's necessarily wrong either. I think that people are driven by self-interested motives in certain cases. They're driven by genuinely other-oriented motives in other cases. But to your point, if we create a set of structures around people that assume that they're driven by self-interest then they'll, I think that they might look around and say, well, this society looks like it's set up for a bunch of, uh, you know, really selfish people. So I guess I'm going to assume that that's who's around me. And maybe I'm even going to assume that's who I am, right? I mean, um, of course, uh, um, uh, oh, the, uh, the, the economist Sam Bowles writes about this beautifully, right? And in, in, um, in the moral economy. And he talks about, I think David Hume, called it a constitution for knaves. 
you know, basically that, that a lot of times economists and policymakers and I'd say leaders in business as well set up their local cultures as if they can't trust the people who are there. Um, but in not trusting people and in setting them up in these really rigid exchange sort of, you know, locked in exchange settings, you kind of teach people that they don't need to be trustworthy. And even if they acted in a trustworthy way, they're not going to get credit for it. They're not going to be able to express their authentic, uh, their authentic trustworthiness, their authentic prosociality. So kind of why bother? And they might not even be motivated to express their genuine, uh, care for others because if someone's like i don't trust you you're not going to be kind then i would be like no i'm going to show you how kind i am i'm going to be like <laughs> okay that might as well be selfish right and, and i act in a way that they predicted but because they predicted it and not you know it's the other way around they make the prediction and then it becomes self-fulfilling rather than they observe what i would do accurately and then uh build their institutions around that so it's it's, it's, it's kind of twisted and the people wouldn't even notice because they just observe that i'm selfish and be like oh well exactly what i predicted right um and it can get yeah just reinforced um even though there was no reason for it to get get established in the first place yeah i mean i think that you know there's there's a lot of examples of this so one study that that we dug up but didn't end up including in the paper i don't think is this old study from um from a psychologist named strickland uh, who in the 1950s uh, sort of created this task that simulated supervisors um, working with an employee. And the employee could either work or shirk, basically. And the supervisor could either decide to look or not look, right? And, and I think there was a cost associated with looking. Um, but if you look and the person's shirking, then they get penalized, right? And, and uh, Strickland set it up so that sometimes the supervisor looked it was like sort of was uh compelled to to look to monitor the employee a lot and in other cases the supervisor only had very few chances to monitor the employee and supervisors who monitored a lot ended up trusting the employee less even if the employee was not shirking was doing exactly what they were supposed to and strickland interviewed these supervisors and he said well why do you not trust this person he said oh he's only doing it because i'm watching it's like well, but we told you to watch. <laughs> we forced you to watch, right? But sometimes the very act of monitoring someone might make you think that the only reason they're doing something good is because you're monitoring them. Again, depriving them a chance of acting in a trustworthy way. And to your point, maybe sapping them of any motive to act in a trustworthy way. And I, I was reading, rereading that study this morning, just thinking about this conversation. And I'm also reading this book called Fulfillment about the culture of Amazon. Uh, and of course, Amazon has, uh, you know, in their warehouses, for instance, has this uh, policy of just absolute and continuous monitoring of uh, every employee, not even by people, by artificial intelligence algorithms that can monitor um, your, uh, whether you're keeping up with every quota, can buzz a band on your wrist if you're not, and the algorithms can terminate you without any human involvement um, if you don't meet quotas. Mm. And so, you know, again, not here to cast too many aspersions, but I think that it's not a far stretch to say that if monitoring and these sort of exchange norms can sap us of our sense that we can be authentically there, cooperative um, and trustworthy and prosocial, 
then a culture of absolute and constant monitoring uh, doesn't seem like a great recipe for community building uh, and, uh, and and I guess tapping into the the deeper uh, the deeper and uh, uh, be- better angels of our nature, I suppose. And this is one last point before we can zoom out a little bit, if you want. Sure. Um, but you had a really interesting thought uh, that we included at the end of the paper about how this affects research, where oftentimes we use economic games in research, right? You have a prisoner's dilemma game, public goods game that some listeners might be aware of. Um, we have certain economic interactions between players. This can, be like, this can be online, can be in person. And you just want to model you know, economic behavior at a, at a small and controllable scale, essentially. And these games are used very widely, and we use them in the lab, and they're great in many ways. Um, but there might also be a certain downside to them uh, do you want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, so, it, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the paper is this interesting effect that economics can have on uh, on our lives. Um, economics in other social sciences are, you know, are, we like to think of them as descriptive sciences. We're just, hey, we're just asking questions. We're just looking around. But sometimes when you look at something, you change it, right? Uh, that's definitely, you know, that's true in Heisenberg's principles of uncertainty, right? That observation can change a, st- a physical state. Um, but, you know, less, <laughs> less loopy than that is that when we observe people, we can change the way that they behave. And especially, you know, so economics labors under this model of people known as homo economicus, which is, again, this view of people as self-interested. And, that view might in and of itself change how policymakers behave, how business leaders behave, and how people see themselves. But you can also ask the question, where did that perspective come from? Well, economics, when they look at social behavior, tend to do so using paradigms from game theory, which is basically saying, let me reduce social behavior to forms of monetary exchange. So instead of looking at trust in the way that 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 you did by sort of not leaving your phone with your hairdresser or, you know, like at looking at trust through, you know, I don't know, people's willingness to have someone babysit their kids, which is an act of great trust. Um, they say, I'm going to look at trust by having total strangers interact in an anonymous setting where they're exchanging money and one person, you know, trusts somebody else with a with an amount of money. Or if I want to look at at altruism, instead of looking at people who jump into a burning building to save a, ch- a small child or a dog, they say, nope, I'm going to have two anonymous strangers meet on the internet and one of them's going to have money and we're going to see if they give any of the money to the other person. As you said, there is a real advantage to this. You know, you can build really elegant quantitative models of social behavior using these paradigms. But I think that it's not a stretch to say that they're a pretty poor approximation of social life in many ways not least of which is that they depend on money. And there is evidence from social psychology that just thinking in monetary terms makes people more selfish, right? Makes people more self-oriented. So if you're, if you're saying, I want to understand things like trust and kindness only by having strangers exchange money, you might end up with a warped and narrow view of things like trust and kindness. And when you then try to extrapolate from that into how people are as social beings, you might get the wrong answer. I mean, the example or the metaphor they often use is someone looking for their uh, for their keys under a street lamp and somebody else saying, oh, did you lose your keys 
under the street lamp and them saying, no, but that's where I can see. You know, it's like, okay, it's great that economists can run mathematical models if they use these paradigms with money. But just because you can do a lot of good modeling on a certain type of behavior doesn't mean that that's the behavior that you that you actually want to be looking at. So one common theme throughout all of these is uh, cynicism. We touched on this a little bit, uh, different parts. And now, cynicism is really just a belief that there's no true, genuine altruism, right? Everything comes down to self-interest. Every time someone does something nice, it's actually just some real self-interest, and you just have to, you know, look close enough, and you're gonna figure out what they're really up to. And you know, this is a belief that is really not super well studied, which is kind of surprising because it's so prevalent. And, you know, just from the description, I don't think there was a single listener who was like, "What's that? I've, I've never heard of that." Right? That that can't be relevant. Um, so. How did you become interested in this topic of cynicism and how does it relate or does it relate to your previous work on empathy? Yeah, I think that to me, the, the, my interest in cynicism, um, came from being cynical. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, it's, it's been such a, a strange trip, um, espousing for and celebrating and studying and, and cataloging people's positive side their what i think is a true capacity for otherishness for deep connection uh, you know and, and maybe for flourishing through that connection at the same time as people seem to hate each other and mistrust each other uh, more than ever um, and and at a time that things like just vast and soaring inequality seem to be tanking people's sense of connection to their culture and you know we 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 are we're basically experiencing the opposite of what i have studied for most of my career it seems to me at least um there's this term i don't know have you have you ever heard the term enemy yeah but i wouldn't be able to define it go ahead enemy is sort of i guess a social form of cynicism it was studied by emile durkheim mm. uh first in his dissertation but then most famously he writes about anomie in his book on suicide which of course is mm. a somber topic but it's interesting that durkheim locates the cause of suicide often not in a person's individual despair but rather in their deep sense of disconnection from other people and their sense not only that they're disconnected from other people but their sense that people are disconnected from each other, that, that this, that our social fabric is unraveling. Um, and he calls that enemy. And I think that it, I, I feel as though we're living in a time of great enemy in lots of different ways. And, and I guess for me personally, studying empathy and kindness, while things seem to be moving in the opposite direction really made me wonder, well, What's happening here? Why are people seeming to move further and further from a set of behaviors that I know from my research and that of many others to bring people great joy uh, and 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 well-being, right? Because it's not just true that we're empathic and kind. When we act in those ways, we we benefit in all sorts of ways. So part of my part of my thinking after after writing my book was sort of like. Why are people not doing what it's so clear that they should do? 
why are they not showing up for each other? Why are they not tapping into these social resources as much as they could? And I kept on coming back to this question or this idea that people don't feel safe expressing the kind side of themselves. They don't feel that that's appropriate in this, in this, in our current cultural context. They think it's counter normative. They think it's, it, they think they'd be a chump. They think it's soft. I got that over, when I talk about empathy and kindness, I get this over and over again. People saying, Oh, c- come on, Zaki, you gotta be kidding me. This is just a bunch of, you know, just, just touchy feely bullshit. Uh, and in fact, people are awful. And I, I, I start to think, well, why do you think that? What's up? What's up with your perspective? How do you know I'm the weird one? Here? And I think what I was encountering was a lot of cynicism. And, you know, I have to admit that I feel it a lot as well. You know, if I if I'm about to give a talk on how kind people are and right before that, I watch the news or go on social media I often encounter information that makes what I'm about to say feel really uh, naive. And that feeling is cynicism as well, right? So I guess, I guess it's a personal experience of a conflict between what I study and what I and others seem to be experiencing that kind of led me there. Yeah, and it really seems to be useful to differentiate between uh, expressing your actual cynicism and just pretending to be cynical. Right now, you might say cynicism correlates with all these negative things. You know, health is worse, and relationships are worse, and just correlational evidence. So we don't really know what is causing what and what's going on there. But it's really bad. But you know, sometimes it really seems like people are just like, "Nah, people are selfish." But then they don't actually believe it. They're just saying it because everyone around them is saying it. And if everyone says it, you don't want to be the one who's like, "No, people are kind." You know, <laughs> everyone's just going to be like, as you said, you know. You're naive, you're weak, you're just waiting to be exploited. And so there can be these so-called phantom norms where people act in a certain way um, because they perceive a norm to be in place. In this case, the norm of self-interest, as, as Dale Miller would call it, where they think everyone believes that all pro-social behavior comes down to self-interest. And therefore, well, I better believe it too, or at least I pretend like I believe it. So I'm not the, not the naive one here because no one wants to be naive. It seems really risky to just be, you know, brave enough to, to acknowledge that you believe in empathy and genuine prosociality. Yeah, it's a really great point. And I mean, I know you know this this paper from uh, from Dale as well, but one of my favorite ones is this paper on um, altruism under the cloak of self-interest, right? So where people are interested in acting generously, but they try to explain their own generosity, right? They'll, they'll act generously more if they can cover it up with a selfish motive, if they can pretend like the reason they did so is to, um, is, is to serve themselves. It's so weird. It's, it's really, it's bizarre to me. Um, but it's, it's also so pervasive that I think you're exactly right that people feel that believing in empathy and kindness makes you it means it's not just that it's counter-normative but it's that it's counter-normative in a really dangerous way being the only wolf among a pack of sheep um maybe isn't that dangerous um maybe it's actually you're living in the middle of a feast but being the only sheep in a pack of wolves um is a is, is a short existence um and you know we've talked about this before but maybe there's a sense that if I'm going to make an error about people, I should make the safe error, right? I should, I, and going out on a limb and trusting people and being wrong might 
exert a larger cost on me, right? It, not just that I'll be naive, but I'm going to lose. If, I, if I'm the only person who trusts or acts kindly in a world of selfish people, I'll, I'll, I'll lose. If I'm the only person who doesn't trust and, and acts selfishly in a world of kind people, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not a great person, but hey, I'm safe. Do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that maybe that, that there could be almost like a risk aversion sort of component to this? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think we've, we've had these discussions in the past and we kind of actually deviate on, on where we stand here. Um, I think, of course, you want to be better safe than sorry and be careful, but there are also so many advantages to just trusting others and to just being naive in a sense. So I, I would say I'm a relatively naive person, even though I've been robbed and mocked and I have had so many experiences in my life where people, and by that I mean my parents, <laughs> were like, you should really be less trusting and be more careful what you do, right? And in a sense, be a bit more cynical and, you know, expect that other people are not nice, that they're, you know, they might look like sheep, but they're actually just wolves and in sheep's clothing. But yeah, I wouldn't want to give it up because, I mean, of course, there can be forms of exploitation that are so, so terrible that you will never recover from them for the rest of your life. And it might be, in that case, it would be really, really good to be on guard of these. You never know if they might come up. But, at least in my cases where, you know, these were bad and almost traumatic experiences and it was like someone holding a knife in my bag and it was really, uh, really, really dangerous. But still, I wouldn't want to give up the trust that I have in others because it's just so wonderful in all the moments where I'm not getting mugged to not be walking the streets constantly aware and anxious that someone's going to kill me. It must be really terrifying to just see every interaction as a, as a potential source for someone to exploit you. Um, and so I think there's, there's some, something to be said about the usefulness of being naive, um, that counterbalances this, you know, better. I love that. Story. Yeah. That's a really powerful perspective. And I mean, it almost gets to what is the set of experiences that guides people? Because I, I completely agree with you in a vacuum or even not in a vacuum in many it, it, overall. The wise choice is to be trusting and, and trustworthy, right? I mean, there's so many ways in which even as an individual, you win if you can collaborate and, and form a coalition and have each other's backs, right? I mean, that's like, that is the way to win in the world, uh, you know, simply put. And so I think you're right that, that if you have any path to that type of belief, to that type of social structure, it's, it's the smart thing to do to take it. I guess the question then becomes, why are fewer and fewer people taking it, right? I mean, why do fewer and fewer people trust people in general, right? I mean, we've talked about this before, but, you know, overall generalized trust, um, although we talked about it earlier in the conversation as a feature of, of market culture is that people do have more generalized trust. If you look, at least in the U.S. over the last four or five decades, generalized trust has been tanking. I mean, it's, it's, we've been declining at a remarkable rate. So if trust is smart, if it's wise, why is it diminishing so much, right? And one version of this would be, you know, that, that people are having, you know, I don't want to use the term trauma too lightly, but that people are having learning experiences mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of beat trust out of them for lack of a better term, right? That, that really, that, that, that teach them in a harsh way that they can't trust people. 
Another is that they might not have to learn that personally, but they just see through almost observational or vicarious learning or through cultural learning that, hey, there are spaces in which I can trust people, but there are a lot of spaces in which I can't, right? That, that they learn that, okay, social norms or the culture in, in this particular space, um, you know, let's say, a, a, I don't know, a hedge fund or Uber in 2015, right? That, that, that this is a culture where explicitly that's not dictated, right? That's yeah. not normative. Yeah, I really agree. And, and one point I always stress, uh, when I mentioned that I study cynicism is that I don't study the, you know, ancient philosophical cynicism. Because it's always like when you look at what is cynicism? Why are people cynical? And then it's always like it's this ancient philosophical tradition. And then it's, it's almost like people just browse the internet and then they find the Wikipedia page <laughs> for cynicism and they're like, Oh, there was this dude who left society and went to go live in a barrel. And that sounds great. Let's do that. It's like that, that's not what happens, right? That's really not what happens. It's just people have terrible experiences and then in certain environments where everyone really is exploiting you, or at least you think they are exploiting you. You don't want to be naive and you don't want to be not on guard. You want to be on guard all the time. And it's really an adaptive response in a sense, as we said, which is why I also don't like the discourse of like, is cynicism accurate, right? Do they really see reality for what it is, right? Are they seeing reality clearly? Whereas everyone everyone else is just wearing rose colored glasses or is it the other way around? non-cynics are seeing reality clearly and the cynics see reality through dark like sunglasses <laughs> um is that what is going on and it just really it depends on the environment and that's so easy answer. cool uh, uh you know i'm thinking of work by olga stavrova um where she looks at um cynics uh sort of cynics trust in cultures cynics and non-cynics and their their amount of trust across many countries and she looks at corruption in those countries. And what she finds is that basically non-cynics are pretty well calibrated. Non-cynics don't trust people that much if they're in a culture that, that is, you know, that, that is characterized by a lot of corruption. Cynics though just don't trust people in any context. So it's almost like they're not calibrating, you know, and, and I guess that gets more to the point of non-cynics having the clear glasses. Mm where they can see when to trust and when not to trust and cynics having sort of these sooty kind of <laughs> sung, you know, these like overly dark sunglasses where everybody seems like they can't be trusted. This is, you know, you know what this is making me think of is there's a difference between like, if you think about the opposite of cynicism, um, you might think it's naivete, mm. but it doesn't have to be right. And I, I think that, that, that really, a term, I don't want to call it the opposite of cynicism, but I want to distinguish it strenuously from cynicism is skepticism. Hmm. I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, Hey, I need some evidence from you before I'm going to trust you, right? Like I'm, I don't just trust people just the minute that I meet, I'm not going to hand my child over to a total stranger. But, um, I think that skeptical perspective, we could think of that as maybe so, maybe naivete is the rose colored glasses. Uh, 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 maybe too much of a default to trust in the absence of any experience. And maybe cynicism is sort of uh, the soot covered glasses. And maybe skepticism is like an openness to, uh, yeah. to evidence or, or a willingness to update our perce- perception on others of others based on evidence. Be really cool to run like a learning paradigm where you like 
have people learn about different strangers and see whether, you know, because this makes a, this makes a prediction that, that, that if you're really high in cynicism, you should trust people very little and actually be bad at learning about who to trust and who not to trust mm-hmm. over time. Yeah. And another, uh, piece of evidence that we found in the literature trying to figure out if cynicism is really adaptive or if it just sticks around for too long is that it really is, uh, reinforcing itself, self-fulfilling in a sense that once you are a cynic, it, it gets reinforced in, in many ways. So one way is the cynical distrust where if I'm cynical. I don't trust you. And then you perceive me as not trusting you. So why would you trust me? Right. <laughs> so all at once the cynic is surrounded by people who don't trust them. And they're like, well, you know, you see people, you can't trust them, <laughs> but it's really because of their cynicism and not that they're untrustworthy and therefore they are cynical. And another is this um, cynical reconstrual where yes. there's a study where, you know, um, cynics were given examples of people who are really, really wonderfully, impulsively altruistic, didn't really think about it, which is often the case. They just help immediately. And the more time these cynics had, the more likely it was that they said, no, nah, it really comes down to something. So you can really see how they were like thinking about how this can actually be veiled self-interest in some, in some sense. And then the final thing is that we have this reputational mechanism in society where we're like, cynics really know what's going on. Right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not so much in America because we're more optimistic and, you know, American dream and have all these things. But I, f- I feel like certainly in Germany and in France and many other countries, it's really, if you want to be a public intellectual, you probably don't want to go around telling people how nice people are. Right? <laughs> if you want to be a journalist, you get all the attention if you talk about how corrupt politicians are, how corrupt everything is, how, how terrible people are. Uh, and we really incentivize it. And maybe we should stop incentivizing them. Yeah. Are you saying, Eric, that, that, that my, uh, that my approach would be, would be received less, less well in continental Europe than it is here? <laughs> Might be. <laughs> I can't speak for the whole continent, but <laughs> or not. Um, <laughs> I'd never thought about that. That's actually a pretty good point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. I, I mean, we, of course, we talk about confirmation bias in all sorts of different parts of psychology, but you're making a really good point that cynicism can be self-fulfilling intrapersonally, right? Like in my mind, I can reinforce my cynicism by taking an, a kind act of yours and just seeing it through my lens and saying, aha. That looked like a kind action that could have been disconfirming of my cynical perspective. But in fact, if you look really carefully and squint and tilt your head sideways, mm. that person was being a total jerk. And I'm, I, I am even more uh, sure of my initial position than I was before that, before I saw that action. Right? So that's the internal version. And then as you put it really well, there's an external version where, you know, if I'm cynical, I will, and it kind of goes back to the transactional um, thinking and the sort of market market forces that we're talking about and the study of monitoring, right? So if if I don't trust you, I might really like watch you like a hawk or, you know, like really carefully um, sort of just act in ways that show you that I don't trust you. And if you feel like I don't trust you, why would you, A, trust me? That's like one thing, right? If, if you're monitoring me very closely, what do you do behind closed doors, right? That's question number one. And two, well, if I don't have any way to express my genuine humanity and trustworthiness to you, why should I bother, right? I might as well just be the person that you think I am already, right? And so, so yeah, I think there, that there's that also that interpersonal. And I think you're exactly right. There's also a cultural cachet, 
with being cynical where it seems like, okay, well, I'm cynical because I'm really smart because I've, I, because I've been around the block a time or two and I can tell you how, how people really work. And there's this sort of hard boil, hard one attitude that cynics often have, that I think runs counter to the fact that they're actually not that wise oftentimes. I mean, there's evidence that cynics, for instance, are worse at detecting lies than non-cynics. Um, again, maybe because they're not, actually paying very good attention to the evidence. They're, they might be over-relying on a global prior uh, and not updating uh, based on new information. And there seems to be this really strong, though, strange comfort in building an identity around being the person who sees through things, right? I, I know what's going on. Everyone else is deluded. And you know, I, I see what's going on. But, well, we could go on for hours with this conversation, but actually we can't. <laughs> We're running up <laughs> against time. So I want to give you a chance to, you know, Say some last words. Anything you want to add um, that you think would be would be great for listeners to know? Oh well, you know, I think that um, I think the one really important thing around cynicism um, is that it's 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 not you're not a bad person if you feel cynically. Sometimes there are there are many things going on in our culture in our in our world that make cynicism quite reasonable, or at least make make despair quite reasonable. There, there are lots of really shitty things happening in the world. But when we become cynical and decide that that's just who people are and will forever be, and that's just what reality is, we are giving up in a way. It, it makes it harder to realize that we can change things. But things do change. Culture changes. And we're the ones who change it. And, and you know, my hope is that a deeper understanding of cynicism can help people make informed and intentional choices about how they want to think about themselves and each other and maybe how they want to act towards themselves and each other. And, and I think if we can collectively make those choices, th there's a potential to be um, more empowered in our culture to set things uh, in, a, in a way that we want. That's powerful. That's, that's perfect. Yeah. Thanks so much for for doing this and for joining the podcast. Oh, of course, Eric. This has been a real pleasure.